Welcome to the Corner Office, where we bring you the latest news from the world of commercial real estate, the greatest voices in the industry, and the corporate chats you've been missing. Let's get to it. Okay, we've got Chris Holdsworth here. He's the Chief Investment Analyst at Investec, uh, which is quite a big role, actually. Uh, you've got a lot of money in there, and you're looking after people and telling them what to do. So I'm quite excited to see what you've got to say today. I've listened to you chat before, and it's always been great. So yeah, thanks for thanks for coming to join us. I just wanted to jump into it. I mean, really, you know, I went back and I was like, what can we talk about Chris to Chris? And, and, and let's go and look at his background. And suddenly I realized that you had an MSc in statistics and a CFA, which are both enormous degrees. So just tell us what they actually are. Yeah, look, they are in a nutshell, a lot of work. I mean, it takes a little while to do it. So I started off at Varsity doing actuarial science. Um, halfway through, I decided that wasn't for me. And believe it or not, I enjoyed stats. And most people I tell that to don't believe me. Yeah. Um, but I, I, it was my passion at the time. I decided to, to carry on with it. I did an honors. And then I sort of just got stuck in and for one year I had a master's and then I got involved in industry. When I was working, I joined Investec and my boss within a couple of months told me I was doing a CFA. So it wasn't really a choice. Um, I just landed up doing it. Um, As I understand, I've got a couple of mates who have done the CFA. Basically, you you don't sort of go past 50 and then pass. You've got to be in the top 20% or they, they like use a bell curve or something like that. And basically they only take the top guys. So if the average pass rate is 70%, uh, you need to have 71% to make it or 80%. And it depends on your year. If the guys are generally smart in your year, it's harder to make it. How does it work? They never quite disclose how the pass mark works. Yeah. But when I was writing at the room at the time, and there always are rooms, is what they would do is they would take the top 1% of marks and then they would take 70% of that, and you'd need to get above that. But you'd also have to pass ethics. So if you got a high mark, but you flunked ethics, you're out. You know, oh. they get through. So you needed to pass nearly every segment, but then an average probably above 70. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's a, it really is a, a tough subject. So I've seen a lot of people try and do it because you get level one, two, three, as I understand. I've seen a lot of people try and do it and a lot of people not make it. And the guys that have made it are generally, I mean, they've, they've had a sweat to get through that degree. Yeah. So it's a... I do need a caveat though. I wrote yeah. it a few years ago and yeah. it seems to have gotten more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> so the pass rate has come down significantly over the past few years. When I wrote it, really? the pass rate was around 50%. Oh, wow. It's well below that now. So I think with most of these things, it's better to do them early. Yeah, it's increasingly yeah. difficult as time progresses. Yeah. I'm just fortunate enough that I wrote it. Incredible. A decade yeah. ago. So listen, I mean, these are, you know, looking at that CFA, MSC and stats, uh, obviously maths has been your background. You know, I, I'm always curious. I mean, I'm not great at maths, you know. I, I, and I, I think people see maths differently, you know. I, I think I see maths more visually. I see it as more of a trend. I, I, I see it like that but if you ask me to sit down and do what nikki does she's our cfo here that sort of catches me out you start looking at the formulas how do you see maths you know i mean as an economist do you see it visually is it is it more how does it make sense to you how does your mind work i mean i'm I'm just curious because guys who are good at maths generally have a different way of thinking yeah strangely enough i'm not very good at maths in the way that most people would think. So yeah. if somebody asked me what's 13 times 12, I don't know it off the top of my head. Yeah. You know? I'm going to whip out a calculator just like anybody else. Yeah. I think where the difference may lie is this was something that I applied myself to at an early age. Um, not just 
multiplication tables, but the general process and thinking in yeah. mathematical ways. And I think when you're young, you have many avenues that are open to you. And the thing that attracts your interest early on sort of sticks and it sticks with you later on. So you'll probably find when you were six or seven, you were just as capable at maths that I was, but you had a preference for something else. And yeah. that is what you developed over time. And, and I'd have happened to develop this. So I don't think it's something that you're naturally born with. I think it's something it's path dependent. You you start yeah. working with on it at some point because it's interesting, and then it sort of sticks, yeah. and you just you land up where you are. So I've sent my daughter, she's five, to do um, it's called like abacus maths or something like this, and they they actually teach you the more sort of Eastern methodology of maths. You know, so it's like using an abacus to count and. I think that the way that they think about maths in the East is differently to the way they think about it in, in the West. You know, it's almost like three tens and a one, you know, as opposed to like 31, you know. So it's quite it's quite different the way that they put the whole thing together. So I'm interested to see where this takes her. But what I panic about is her coming to ask me about trigonometry in high school because I'm not going to be there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A couple of things I wanted to chat about, and I mean, we've just seen the interest rate go up again. Obviously, inflation targeting, we have an inflation band in South Africa that we're targeting. I think it's 3 to, 3 to 6%, right? Correct, yeah. Uh, we're above that in terms of inflation, so obviously we keep pushing the interest rate up to try and calm inflation. But a lot of the inflation in South Africa is actually from fuel price increases, which we have nothing to do with, you know? So South Africa is all getting smacked at the moment because it's not necessarily an inherent inflation although food prices of I, I don't know what's going on there but it's radical yeah. uh, every time you go to Woolworths it used to be 500 bucks now it's like a thousand bucks every bag you know but what how how are we continuing to push interest rates up the whole time where it's not necessarily our own inf I mean there's no growth in the in the market like and I understand like if you don't do it then you, you can get sort of runaway inflation but how does it work? How does it? How does that actually sort of come together to calm an economy which is really not firing on all cylinders? I don't fully get it. I mean, I understand the methodology, but I don't get it. Yeah, it's a, it's a very tough position to be in. I don't envy them at all, or envy them. It's a, it's a whole committee. But in effect, what they do is they try to contain inflation expectations because in their model of the world, if inflation expectations become entrenched above six percent that will lead to higher inflation. So if everybody expects prices to go up by more than 6%, they'll ask for 6% and above increases for the wages, and that will lead to price increases, and then it comes back to wages, and you land up with the cycle where you have consistently high inflation. That's the way they see it. That's what they want to guard against. Yeah. So when you land up in a position where inflation expectations go up based on surveys, they feel that they need to react. So they need to bring those inflation expectations down. So they will hike rates. But we need to recognize that interest rates are a blunt tool. Mm. You're hiking rates to suppress demand. That comes with consequences. And as a result, we'll land up with a slowing of the economy. Now, that in itself should bring inflation down somewhat. But in addition, if you hike rates, it potentially could lead to a stronger currency. That, too, should lead to low inflation. So those are the two primary channels. They want to slow growth. They want to strengthen the currency. Yeah. And then you land up with inflation coming down. There are two problems at the moment. The first is that the rest of the world has been hiking. So if we don't hike, well, the Absolutely. rest of the I mean, you look, yeah. you look at, I mean, I, I can't get my, quite get my head around. I mean, guys in the UK, let's say you've got your bond at like 2%, and now it's at 6%. It's three times higher. Yeah. I mean, we, we go from like 9 to 10%. It's like 10% higher. They, imagine we went to 30% interest rates. It'd be yeah. chaos. Yeah. 
And we're also accustomed to the sort of volatility. Developed markets are not. So they've got a separate issue on, on their yeah. plate. Perhaps we can talk about that just now. But from our perspective in South Africa, our global peers are hiking rates. If we don't, money is going to flow to those countries, the currency weakens. So the Saab, yeah. in some ways, is hiking because other countries are hiking. With regards to the point about inflation in South Africa in particular, if you look at their forecast, if you look at what changed between the last MPC meeting and this one, all the change was that they penciling in higher food and energy price inflation. Their core inflation forecast did not change. So you would say if they're targeting core inflation, which is what they say, that they wouldn't have needed to hike. It tells us that they didn't hike simply because of inflation in South Africa. They hiked because of those inflation expectations, not necessarily the inflation itself, but the inflation expectations, and they hiked because other countries have been hiking. Yeah. Now, what does that mean? Well, in 12 months' time, when other countries are potentially cutting, and when inflation in South Africa is well within the band, we would expect to see cuts. So we think we're at the top of the interest rate cycle in South Africa. We think we're going to see some pretty sizable cuts well, we're now, by we're year end. 50 points up is 11.25 now. So uh, that's looking at prime. So repo is prime, at yeah, yeah. 7.75 yes. at the latest numbers. It's up materially off where it was before. We think we're looking at 50 to 75 basis points worth of cuts within the next 12 months. Oh, wow. Well, off, off a high level, it's got some way to come back, but yeah. we think this is the peak now and yeah. it won't be too long. They leave it flat for four or five months in our view and then got it starts you. to come down. Tell me, why such high food inflation, food cost inflation? I mean, we, we are a farming country, right? We don't. It's not like we import our food. We, we do import some food. We yeah. import wheat. So Russia invaded Ukraine. Ukraine is very important for global wheat prices. And even though we provide more than enough maize ourselves, farmers have the option to export it. So if the rand weakens, we need to have our prices catch up with global prices. Otherwise, farmers are simply going to export everything. So you've had these massive increases in input prices. But then in addition to that, ESCOM has seen price increases too, and farmers need to meet those. And also there's intermittent supply of electricity, which affects the ability to, to pr produce food chaos. as well. I mean, we've seen our clients, we've got guys produce plastic bottles and, and whatnot. And I mean, you can imagine these guys with the big extrusion machines. They've got to, if they know load shedding's coming, they've got to shut their machine down 45 minutes before load shedding. And then it takes about 45 minutes to heat the machines up after load shedding. So now you've got whatever, four hours of load shedding. For them, it's actually six hours. And by the time they're back on, they're back off again. You know, so it is unbelievably difficult for guys to be able to actually produce and, and carry on. You know, we're, we're a different business. We're a yeah. services business, as are you. Yeah. You can pick up the phone. You can, you know, you can still get onto the internet, that kind of thing. It doesn't, you, you know, you're in services. For them, drama, yeah. you know. I don't, I don't know where it goes. What do you think about the... What do you think about the latest sort of tax relief in terms of um, in terms of well, like businesses being able to uh, get a tax deduction from installing solar and that kind of thing? Already, we've seen so much investment in solar. Do you think it's going to see more, or I mean, do you think we're going to get to a position where we're actually sustainable again? And uh, what what is the chat? Yeah, we we think that is the way out of this. It's going to come with its own consequences, but in effect, we're going to see a vast amount of renewables brought on stream by the private sector. If you look at the number of large-scale, not quite utility-scale, but large-scale solar installations last year, um, that's roughly enough to take off one stage of load shedding if it were to operate fully. Now, obviously, it can't during the evening. Yeah. So we probably have to discount that number by a bit. And if you look year to date this year, it's enough to take off two stages. So in total, we're looking at three, but you probably need a half of that because it's solar, it's not base load. So maybe looking at one and a half, but it's, it's on the way. 
and there's more coming. So incrementally, households, businesses will get themselves off reliance on ESCOM and that will allow ESCOM sufficient space to be able to sort itself out. At the same time, if you look at the energy availability factor at ESCOM, it, it's been very disappointing. And that's very low due to A, planned maintenance, but B, unplanned outages. Yeah. So those are the two reasons that a plant would be off. And planned maintenance hasn't changed materially. What's interesting is if you ever look over the past couple of weeks, the unplanned outages have dropped off quite materially. And that's why we have a lower level of load shedding now yeah. than we had a few weeks ago. And that's, that's pretty curious. I mean, how can that number drop by as much as it did? We're still trying to figure it out. Office, Do you think they're just running the thing hot? Like they're just, they're just, I mean, almost like to a higher degree of risk, they're just pushing it, pushing the system as much as possible, which puts us in more risk as opposed to saying we're going to do the planned maintenance and, and all the rest of it. I mean, I, it looks like that's not what's happening because planned maintenance is running dead bang in line with where it was before. It's the unplanned breakages that oh, suddenly wow. seem to have slowed down. Again, I don't really have an answer for yeah, why that yeah. is the case. But if that were to be persistent, that would materially change the growth outlook. I remember you doing a talk a couple of years ago, um, and you were talking about the uh, you know the energy availability factor, and you said it needed to be at a specific percentage to see any GDP growth whatsoever. Can you recall that number? Yeah, sixty percent or yeah, that's right. I mean, t t in order in order to get any growth at all, so GDP growth ab above zero percent. Yeah, typically we'd like to see that energy availability factor above 62, 63 on average throughout the year. For electricity to not be a binding constraint on growth at all, we think that number needs to be above 72%. Yeah. Where are we now? Uh, we're currently just a bit below 60, yeah, but looking at the latest numbers. Yeah. Okay. Um, so allowing for growth of around about 1%. Now those numbers are going to shift over time as the economy shifts away from reliance on ESCOM and they're imprecise estimates to start off with. It's, it's really a rule of thumb. Yeah. But if we're getting energy availability factors of, of above 60, that allows for mediocre growth, actually weak growth, any number above 72, and we can look at decent type growth. Yeah. And we're very much at the bottom of the end of that range. And now, and now how, if, if you've got that, and now you've got all the solar, can you have a lower number because you've got solar? And so can we now operate at 58% because you've got all this additional supply coming into private? Is that how it works? Conceptually, yes, but it does get a bit tricky because in the evening, solar is not helping a lot, yeah, and that's yeah. peak demand. So it's not quite as simple as that, but generally, yes. that's the So idea. we've seen our clients, basically, they, they, they go to their tenants, the tenants are desperate they need to produce if they're not producing the compound their rent and there's a knock-on so the landlords are saying right what we're going to do is we'll install your solar uh, we'll come and put up the you know the, the panels and all the rest of it but if you want batteries you do it yourself because the batteries are really the it that becomes the the, the number that really blows out the the cost of the whole thing you know it's like it, it, it's a significant number and ultimately no one can afford it. So that, that's why I think we're seeing this problem with, you know, no supply at night and, and yeah. it just doesn't make sense almost, you know. And it, it's going to lead to an increase in costs for businesses for one. Yes. This is one of the reasons why we've reduced our exposure to SA Inc. We think valuation is very compelling, but you throw in the costs that are coming through, just keeping the lights on. Yeah. Um, and that starts to add a bit. Plus you land up with demand destruction because people are not out there shopping when, yeah. when you've got load shedding. And it becomes an issue. And then there's a knock-on consequence too. If we're all going to shift away to solar and generating our own electricity at home and at shopping centers, it means that there's less revenue for ESCOM for one, but less revenue for municipalities mm. too. And how do they address that? They, they don't have many moving parts. They can yeah. hike the price of water, which is very unpalatable. Yeah. I don't think they'll do it. Or they can hike the price of rates. That's all they're going to do. So you're going to land up with double-digit rate increases to compensate for the fact that really, yeah. they're not selling electricity in the same scale that they did before. 
I mean, we were talking about, um, you know, looking looking at SA and you, you were saying the actual cost of electricity and rates and all the rest of it. I remember years ago, uh, one of my one of my mates was talking about the the underlying or the real tax rate that you pay as a South African, you know, because let's say you live in the UK, you don't have a private security firm that you're paying, you don't pay for a whatever it might be, you don't, you know, public transport you use and you don't have a car. So you, you start to stack up what you're actually paying as a tax rate. How does South Africa fare? Have you ever looked at that kind of number? Is that an, is that something that is largely debated or discussed or it feels like it's quite expensive to live here at the moment? It, it's a very difficult number to estimate because you're getting some quality in return you're paying up, but you're paying up yeah, yeah. very good quality of services. What we do know is that the marginal tax rate in South Africa, 45%, is high relative to other middle-income countries. Very high. Okay. Um, so we know that that is, is very different. But when we talk about getting private sector education, you might find that private sector education is better than the state education in some other countries. So, for example, yes. if you're in the inner city of a large American city, perhaps you don't want state education. You might want private sector education there too. So you've got to compare like for like, and it's very difficult to do in that regard. I mean, a healthcare is great if you're in the private sector in yeah. South Africa. Um, so we haven't done that sort of analysis very broadly. It, it's quite difficult to do. What we have done is compare us to other middle-income countries, in which case our, our personal tax rate is high. It's high. Okay. Well, there's been a lot of chat of China reopening, and that's yeah. obviously great news for SA. Yeah. You know, um, we are a, a commodities-driven country, and you know, China reopened, suddenly they start consuming more. It doesn't feel like it's really happening. You know, is it or isn't it? Is it a stop-go? What, what is happening globally, and how does it impact us? Yeah, um, we'll start off with China and then we'll go to the US. And uh, the reopening is is happening. We, we're seeing it through a lot of hard data that's coming through now. It might not be happening as rapidly as market participants would like, but it's clearly happening. Last year, the Chinese economy grew just a bit less than 3%. This year, they're going to grow at 5%. Yeah. That's the target that they've set themselves. Incredible, huh? They're ramping up credit extension. Uh, we can tell that through the numbers that have come through. As an example, money supply growth in China is currently running at just below 13%, in the US it's minus two. So the massive difference between the two, what allows the Chinese authorities to do this is very low inflation. Unlike the rest of the globe, inflation in China is running at 1%. How? I don't, know, I don't get it. I mean, their, their, their growth rate is so high, their inflation is like minimal. They don't have the same food price issues that the rest of the globe does. They're less reliant on wheat. That's part of it. But also last year was a pretty weak year for the Chinese economy self-imposed it was their COVID zero approach yes. and also they tried to uh, reduce support for their property sector and that led to a broad slowdown in yes, the economy you know, a couple of failures in the big in the big guys yeah yeah and they're still dealing with the headache from that but broadly speaking their economy was pretty weak relative to where it's been before so they'll end up with lower inflation so inflation is one percent the target is three so anytime that there's a slowdown, they can stimulate. The rest of the globe can't. We can't, the Fed can't, the ECB can't, but the Chinese can. So they cut the required reserve ratio. They're providing stimulus. We're seeing industrial production ramp up. Copper is up 20% since October last year. Iron ore is up over 45%. So we are seeing a response in commodity markets. The Chinese economy is rebounding. It's extremely helpful for South Africa. And it's one of the reasons why we'll probably eke out growth of 1% or above while you're looking at growth of around 0% for Europe and, and the US. So it, you're right, it is very helpful for us. It is starting to rebound too. Let's hope it continues for the next 12 months. You see a lot of investment, like direct Chinese investment, big corporations that are going to Africa. Yeah. Do you see a lot of in, like direct investment into South Africa? 
No, to be honest, there hasn't been a huge amount. It's uh, interesting. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, we're here, you know. Yeah, we don't attract a hang of a lot of FDI. The last couple of years, it did start to pick up a little bit, um, but there's a huge amount of work to be done there. Um, we need to make it much more attractive to foreigners to come and invest in SA. When you say much more attractive, are we talking about policy? Policy, we need to ensure that they get favorable tax rates. I mean, we, we can do a lot to yeah. make ourselves uh, more attractive. To what are the Policy-wise, what are the big sort of like no-nos that the international investors from an FDI perspective look at and think, well, that's a problem for us. Well, there's two major ones in SA. Aside from general government policy, yeah. it's very difficult to attract a global manufacturer to invest in South Africa if we don't have a stable electricity supply. So that's that's number one. Uh, alternatively, you've got to provide massive discounts for them to generate their own electricity. But for two, we need to have a reliable transport sector. I mean, if you've got trains that are unable to function properly, it's very difficult to mm. operate something in the middle of the country and try to get it through to a port where the port doesn't function. So th those are the two primary things, electricity and transport. And so okay. Those are, and already you're, you're halfway there. Yeah. What's it, currently we negotiating in China to get spare parts or what? I've read a couple of headlines. What's the story? Yeah, that, that's for Transnet. That's yes. to get parts through to Transnet. It's part of the issue. I mean, Transnet previously had huge amounts of supply available in the country that seems to have dwindled down. So now there's a shortage. We've got to import some of the parts from elsewhere, um, and it's proving to be difficult. But that's just part of the broader issues at, at Transnet, yes. which have been hobbling South African growth. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And then I wanted to chat about, we're a commercial property business, commercial property services. We can trade into a market that's going up. We can trade into a market that's going down. We're, we're effectively in the middle, so we're transactional. Okay, We have our auction business. We have our advisory business. We have our leasing business. We have all of these different service lines. The biggest problem for us is when people cannot make decisions. Yeah. So when you get into a situation where you're like, how much is the interest rate going to be going up? You know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually just going to sit where I am. And I'm not going to make a decision. How, how do you factor that in sort of broad economics. Do you feel that like we feel it? Do, does, the, does the market feel it? People can't make CapEx decisions. Do they just sit and store cash in their balance sheet and not deploy capital? What, what is actually happening when people can't make their minds up? You're exactly right. We, we can't model it as precisely as you can. I mean, you've got your own internal models literally in your head and you can go around and you can see it yes. straight away. We, we can't. We can see it sort of secondhand through the data. Yeah. But it does confirm our minds exactly what, what you're saying now um, and we can pick it up through the capex numbers which have been very disappointing in south africa for a very long time yeah the, the vast majority of gross fixed capital formation for any country comes from the private sector and the private sector in south africa has not been investing and they haven't been investing because of the risks in south africa so they've been holding back but that has a positive effect too it means that if there's a lack of investment you generally get higher returns off your investment, there's less competition. Yes. So if you're able to generate returns, you can generate sizable returns because it's very difficult for other people, foreigners, to come here and set up competition. Uh, so there's some give and take here. It's not all bad. Yeah. Um, and, and there are still opportunities in, in South Africa too to generate returns, and those opportunities come about because of less competition from abroad. Yeah. So, I mean, just as a high level, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly no investment strategist, you know, but I, I love reading and I love the notes that, that you put out and, and I, I try and read as much as possible. But the, the sort of general uh, comment into the market at the moment is obviously with rate hikes throughout the US, a lot of the sort of liquid capital, the, the sort of funny money investment has been pulled out of the riskier investments, Bitcoin, all, all of these yeah. type of things. And people are going for the more sort of stable investment. 
where are guys generally going at the moment? I mean, we talk about like bonds and bond proxies and, and that kind of thing. Historically, it used to be, you know, gold. People yeah. say, oh, there's risk in the market, go gold, you know. What are people doing now? Now that in Bitcoin is not as fashionable anymore. Yeah, we can pick it up through the numbers. It's, it's pretty dull. It's money markets. So we can pick it up very clearly. What's happening in the U.S. now, well, there's two things. One, there's greater level of risk aversion more broadly. So you're taking money out of risky assets and you're wanting to park it somewhere. And you've got a choice of putting it on deposit at a bank where they'll give you 1% or less. Or you can go to a money market where you're going to get 4.5%. Yes. So the money's going to the money market. But it's also coming out of deposits where you're getting 0-1% into money markets too. And that's causing some stress for some of these smaller regional banks. That's part of the SVB issue. Banks need to increase their deposit rates to be able to compete effectively okay, with okay. money markets. And until they do that, we're going to see continuing withdrawals from bank deposits into money markets in the U.S. Okay. And in South Africa, like, what are we talking about money market? And, and, and when we talk about money market and bonds, bond proxy, all that type of thing, property used to be quite a good go-to. You know, it was like, this issue is a good dividend. It's pretty stable. Now you're not sure whether there is a dividend. The guys are issuing 80% of their you know, what is distributable and what's actually happening in property. It used to be such a great asset in that it, it, from a REIT perspective and that, yeah. that it was quite liquid, so it traded at a premium to its net asset value. Now it's trading at a discount to its net asset value. So those funds literally find it really hard to invest because as soon as they invest, <laughs> it's worth less, you know. So you buy something for a million rand, it's not worth 800 the second that you put it into your structure. So what, what's actually happening then, and how do they get? How do we get out of this? Do we need to see GDP growth? Yeah. So th there's two issues at play. The, the first one is why are REITs so depressed at this moment? And and the reality is they still haven't shaken off the headache yet from COVID. We landed up with large vacancies that, that's still in evidence uh, across the whole property sector, yeah. and investors in this sort of environment are are quite hesitant. Um, and that is a global phenomenon. It's not necessarily just linked to South Africa. At the same time, our REIT index is not quite what it was four or five years ago. We've what does that mean? Increased exposure to countries outside of South Africa. Okay, okay. Increasingly large portion of that index. So uh, 10, 15 years ago, the South African REIT index, the equivalent of, would have tracked the long bond yield in some way or another. So your dividend yield on your property stocks would have tracked your long bond yield, shifted up and down together. But now because you've got a large portion of property in effect exposed to Eastern Europe and other parts of the globe, that link is broken down. So it's broken down for two reasons. One being COVID, the other is simply the composition of that index. How do we get out of this? At what point does that discount to NAV narrow significantly? There is a, a silver lining to lower growth in South Africa. If we scratch and sniff a little bit at those GDP numbers, and we say, why is GDP now currently only roughly in line with where it was pre-COVID? And we look at the subsectors, what you'll find is that some sectors are well above. Agriculture, for example, well above pre-COVID levels. Finance, well above pre-COVID levels. Construction is well below, 20% below. And it has been running at 20% below since COVID started. So we've got very low levels of construction in South Africa. And what that means is that we're not building enough for decent growth. So how does this whole situation resolve itself? Well, let's assume at some point Transnet and ESCOM get their act together. And they're no longer binding constraints on growth in South Africa. Yeah. And the South African economy grows, shifts from growing at 1% to growing at 3%. We don't have the property for that. We've been holding back on property construction materially yes. for a few years. At some point, we're going to land up with a shortage of property because we haven't been building. Yes. We've been building we by much less. I mean, yeah. cheapest. We've got no stock. 
we've been building by much less than the rest of the economy is growing. And, and that's because of COVID and people working from home and everything else. So as soon as growth starts to pick up, there isn't going to be the supply available. And that means the prices will go up and that'll be very helpful for REITs. And that means that we'll see that discount narrowing. And if it happens to coincide with improvements in other parts of the world, Europe, and Eastern Europe and the UK, where we have this exposure within the REITs index, that would be extremely helpful, broadly speaking, for REITs. Yeah. But for South Africans in particular, you hit the nail on the head. We're waiting for faster growth. But when that comes about, we probably won't have sufficient supply for it at that point. Got you. Chris, it's been amazing to have you. Um, always such great insight. I love the way that you think about it and and uh, and, and, and chat about it. And, and it's just it seems to be something that you're quite passionate about. So I'm uh, really thankful. Uh, thanks for joining us.